Hello and welcome back to the Sour Popcorn Podcast. A weekly show regarding all things entertainment, including reviews. Before we get started on anything, we'd like to draw attention to the fact that we haven't been around for, I think it's been nearly two weeks now. And this has been because of schoolwork and some commitments that we've had to see through. We apologise for the hiatus and while it has been necessary, we hope it won't be something that happens regularly. Getting right into the news. Zachary Levi has been cast as Shazam in DCEU. It's the DCEU, actually. They don't like it being called the DCEU, so just to correct you there. I'm not happy about Shazam at all. I mean, I didn't think this movie was going to go well in the first place. It seems like they've been pushing it back forever. And now that they've finally made a big casting decision, I couldn't be more disappointed. I don't like Zachary Levi at all. I don't think he's a good actor, and I don't think he's going to be the right fit for the character. I really like him in Chuck because I love the show Chuck, but it sort of shows the state that DC's in at the moment because Marvel has Zachary Levi as literally a character that's not on screen for five minutes. And then DC have him as this big staple, one of their main heroes, and Marvel just like, nah, sweep him under the rug. That was something that I was really hoping DC was going to do for this movie, was cast someone big, because it's a big part of the comics how Shazam and Superman, they're regularly equals, and I'd like to have seen someone of star status be brought in to try and contend with which, like, not only get people interested in this movie and the DCU as it is, but also to maybe, like, see some kind of, like, solo movie where it is Superman and Shazam together, like... If you've got a star big enough, and if this movie does well enough to make something like that happen, but I don't think Zachary Levi can do that at all. Like, when I've seen him in things like Heroes Reborn, which was the last thing I can remember him being in, he, he was dreadful in it. And he was one of the worst parts of that series. So, to see him kind of come in and play a character that's got like a really boyish charm and kind of like no adult sensibility, it's not something I think he can pull off. I think it is because that's essentially the character he plays in Chuck. That is essentially Chuck. Um, but from what you were saying about the star power, I think that's exactly why they brought The Rock in for yeah, exactly. Suicide Squad 2 because they know the it's a sinking ship. The Rock saves franchises. The Rock saves franchises. <laughs> Just look at Fast and Furious. Yeah. But I think he's going to do a good job because I enjoy him. He's got good comedic timing. He's funny. Have you seen the fan art of someone sketched him as Shazam. No, I haven't. I'd like to see that, though. Has he got a hood? No. Thank God, because I think people putting him in a hood looks dreadful. He just needs the little shoulder cape. But that he looks really good in it. I was quite surprised, because when it was first announced, I just pictured Chuck with the long hair, but then in the fan art, it looks like him. Mm. He has shorter hair, and he's in the suit. And bad. he definitely looks the part. Well, I'll maybe hold off on some criticism then. I mean... It's so early to be able to speculate about this movie that we don't even know who's directing it. We don't know if the likes of Dwayne Johnson is going to be in it. I, I just felt worried when I heard his name pop up. In other news this week, um, Amazon has been in recent talks with the Tolkien Foundation and has, for a hefty sum, acquired the rights to make a Lord of the Rings prequel TV series. Of all the things, why Lord of the Rings? Because it was such a successful like original trilogy, and then 
the hobbits surely showed that it was going in the wrong direction with where they wanted to take it. But it'd be interesting to see which stories they want to tell, if it's just in the world of Lord of the Rings or if it's specific parts of the book that they want to elaborate on. Because the games are doing really well. The games are really good. Yeah, definitely. But it just seems like an odd thing. But I suppose Amazon are looking for those big top franchises that they can use to properly propel their video service. Yeah, that's just my big problem with this though, because of all the properties to propel something forward with, Lord of the Rings is probably one of the worst ones because everyone still remembers the original trilogy that everyone loves. Everyone still thinks of Ian McKellen as Gandalf, Elijah Wood as Frodo. And to try and tell a new story, you're going to have a hard time bringing anyone in because a lot of the other Tolkien books are not well praised. Besides maybe The Cimmerillion, which is a really great prequel book, there isn't going to be bring much that's going to bring people in. And especially when we live in this fantasy culture that is dominated by Game of Thrones, I think it's suicide for any big company to try to bring out another mainstream fantasy show that's got a massive budget when Game of Thrones is still in existence because that's just what's going to be it's going to be compared to and when this show has shortcomings it which it naturally will people are just going to look at game of thrones as a better alternative i was telling you the other week how i love game of thrones but one of the things that annoys me is in the advertising for pretty much every new big yeah, budget definitely. show it it just it's says everywhere. the new game of thrones yeah and i can just imagine it being put on the advertising for this oh, one God, yeah, yeah. where it shouldn't be trying to be Game of Thrones. It should be trying to be its own thing and tell unique stories with the fantasy genre rather than yeah. just trying to be a clone copy and take the success of it. Which is a little bit ironic in itself, given that Game of Thrones is a carbon copy and purely inspired by Lord of the Rings itself, which is unfortunate, but I'd like to see who they get in to make this. I hope they hold it back for a little while. It'd be nice to see something like this come in maybe after we've had the final season of Game of Thrones, so that it's like a little bit of a... It gives people a hunger for it. Yeah, definitely. Before. It'll be a bit of a filler before they bring out their spin-off shows, whenever that's going to happen. And I think whatever story they tell, they're going to need a great cast for this. Like, they'll need someone who fits in well with fantasy. And that is something that I think on a lot of TV shows, like, to name but one, that Shannara Chron Chronicles, is that even how you pronounce it? That came out none of the actors were good for that and I think that's why it failed. Game of Thrones is essentially War of the Roses with the Lord of the Rings skin on it. That's yeah. essentially what it is. And a Pornhub feature. Thanks for that. <laughs> no problem. Um, what sort of format would you want this to be in? Would you want it to be a more American, like, 23 episodes or would you want it to be more hour-long episodes but only, like, 10 in a series? Yeah, I personally believe it should be like hour-long 10-episode series. That's the reason why Game of Thrones does so well, because they know they've got a short season, they can put lots of money into it. And it's also, I think, good because it means they put a lot of work into those like episodes. They make sure those 10 episodes are great. For me, the 22-episode format isn't going to work with this, season, this kind of show. Number one, because on those kind of seasons, you get so many filler episodes. Yeah. And because this is Lord of the Rings, it is... Quite, fan quite possibly the biggest fantasy world ever made, they're going to need to be putting so much money into this to just be able to capture even a fraction of what Middle-earth is really like. So to 
give it so many episodes and then to potentially see a fall in budget for certain episodes is going to be something that really distracts and annoys a lot of the fans. So I think it really will need to be in something where it is 10 episodes. Do you reckon they are just going to use the old sets from the films? Because they're still knocking about on like when they do the like studio tours. Yeah. So I'd love to see them, but at the same time, I think it's just going to be too distracting. I think if you use the Shire set, if you use iconic ones like Rivendell, fans are going to immediately see, immediately think, oh God, why aren't, why aren't I watching the more superior version? And especially if this is a prequel series or some something we've never seen before. Hopefully it won't feel the need to. So the new Jodie Whittaker costume's been announced. Well, revealed. been revealed for the 13th Doctor. And I just want to ask why? It, it doesn't seem... Obviously the Doctor's never had a good sense of fashion. But this just seems impractical for running about. And it, it seems like they've thought too much about what the design of the costume is going to be because instead of it just looking like it's all been thrown together it has loads of homages like the same colours of the scarf of Tom Baker's scarf yeah. and then the straps from Matt Smith's and then it still looks cobbled together but it relies too much on the past rather than trying to stand out by itself I personally liked the costume I thought it was something that was different I'm always a fan of long coat doctors, so I like seeing that come back. I wasn't the biggest fan of the trousers, but that's a really small problem. I think she's certainly gotten herself a bit of a unique image. Like, it's very not what I was expecting her to be seen in, especially when we saw the premiere trailer that the reveal one of her, and she was wearing somewhat of Capaldi's outfit. So I didn't know what to expect from her, but I did like this one. Something I do hate from the fans, though, is... That instead of spending time focusing on her outfit and how great it is to see a female doctor like this, we're focusing more on the fact that the bloody sign on the TARDIS behind it has turned black. That's... I'm quite interested by that <sighs> because it, it's it's a lot like some of the classic ones, and then like they've changed the lamp on the top, and it's just interesting to see a new design of the TARDIS because we've had this one since 2010, and it's well with a few alterations. But, it does... but we're also getting a new TARDIS interior, so I think. Maybe that that's something else. Yeah, up, focus or... more on the interior. Don't worry about the outside. It's always gonna look basically the same. She's got a brand new outfit. Looks really good in it, and I don't think enough people are paying attention to that. Worry about the TARDIS when we see an interior shot. Focus on her more now, though, because I don't think enough people have been. I mean, I've even seen people out wearing the T-shirt she's wearing. And I think that's great that that's incorporated into her outfit. Something that some people may even potentially already be wearing and can think, crap, I'm related to it. I think one of the reasons why people are talking about the TARDIS more is because while the costume seems to have been very divisive on either people absolutely love it or they absolutely hate it, whereas the TARDIS, a lot of people are going, oh, look at that change, that's quite interesting, I quite like that. And then there's been quite a positive reaction from fans about yeah. the change of the TARDIS so I think that's sort of people trying to go oh don't worry about the costume for the time being oh look yeah. a lovely new TARDIS design <laughs> I'd be more interested to see what the new screwdriver looks like is she going to keep yeah. Capaldi's or will she go on to a new one I personally hope it's a new one yeah so do I because I like to see what different designers do and where they go with it and yeah definitely yeah and especially when we spent so long with like Eccleston and 
and Tenant's blue one, it was amazing to then see a shift to the green. It'd be great to see, like, another colour shift. You know this fandom's got very little to talk about when one of the most interesting things we can speculate over is a potential colour change of (laughs) a sonic screwdriver. (laughs) Well, this Friday they're revealing a clip for Children in Need of the Christmas special, so hopefully that'll be good and entice people because... My mum's been turned off Doctor Who for a while because she 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 just thinks it's getting stale, and obviously that's why they're handing over the reins to Chibnall. But I really enjoyed Series Ten. It was sort of a return to form. I mean, it wasn't an outstanding series, but World Enough in Time was one of the best episodes we've yeah. had in years. One hundred percent. So I'm just looking forward to that. But one of the things that I love about this costume, even though I'm not keen on it. They did not sexualise the Doctor. Yeah, that was something I was really happy to see. I was expecting her to maybe even be in a skirt and, like, have heels on. To see her in, like, combat boots and then, like, having, um, like, trousers on and just, like, things like braces. It doesn't relate too heavily to her being a man, but it is to me, like, what the modern woman looks like. And that was something that I was excited by. Yeah, because none of the Doctors have ever worn anything that could in any way resemble anything that's quite risque yeah obviously there have been points where like matt smith was getting out his costume and and then it's like you're gonna look away no No. (laughs) but the actual costume itself was very traditional and i think that's one of the things that is sort of putting me off of this costume because it seems like very modern and contemporary fabrics rather than like the Victorian thick tweed and like the leather jacket. Exactly. It, it seems very more modern. And if that's the direction they're going with it, then that's perfectly fine. But it's yeah. just, I think, getting used to the change rather than it being a horrible costume because it, it's not terrible. No, definitely not. And one thing this show can 100% do is change the costume if it's yeah. got a problem. They did it with Smith, they did it with Capaldi. It can be done with Whitaker. They change the lead actors every couple of years. Of course, they can just change the costume. <laughs> new Star Wars news, Zach. A, a little indie film that, that I was telling you about the other day, Star Wars. Uh, I've, I've never heard of it. Do you think... Is it, is it going to be big? Is it going to be big? I reckon it's going places. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Keeping an eye on these Star Wars guys. They, they know what they're doing. Um, Ryan Johnson, obviously director of The Last Jedi that's coming out soon. Well, a couple of months. Um, and he directed Looper as well. He's been given full reins for the next trilogy. It's not going to be a Skywalker trilogy. It's going to be completely Mm -hmm. new. They've said it won't have the Skywalkers in it. It will be a new set of characters. It will be a new part of the galaxy. And that's why I'm so interested in it. It's going to be its own separate thing, similar to how the Rogue One and the Solo movie are spin-offs, but they still relate to the main story. This will be a spin-off that is new, it's new characters, it will introduce a new three-arc storyline to go across. I know he is writing all three, I don't know if he's directing all three, but the first one is definitely being helmed by him, and I think it will be brilliant to see him bring in a new sense of like wonder and something new to this universe. Especially if we're going to go into a Star Wars film and there's things where there's like no Jedi, there's no Sith, there's no Skywalkers. It's just something completely new. That's what really interests me about this. I think what they're going to do with the Skywalker trilogies 
is they're still going to be the main staples of the franchise, obviously. But I think after episode nine, they're then going to pull back for a bit. Obviously release like a few, like this Ryan Johnson trilogy, but then they're going to want to build up that hype like they did for The Force Awakens. And then they're just going to like, be like yeah. episode 10. So I reckon they're going to, they don't want to make it stale with the main trilogy because obviously Rogue One didn't do as well as Force Awakens, yeah. but... I don't even think The Last Jedi is going to do as well as The Force Awakens. But The Force Awakens did so well because it built up that hype because there hadn't been Star Wars in ages. And the same thing happened with The Phantom Menace. Yeah, exactly. I think you'll never achieve the success of, like, financially of The Force Awakens, but I think you can critically, and I think you can in terms of audience enjoyment. I feel that it's for that reason that's why this trilogy is, new trilogy is going to do so well. Like, when Rogue One came out, I said, this is where we're going to start seeing Disney running Star Wars into the ground, because they produced what wasn't a great movie, what was a movie filled with a lot of fan service, and what was a movie that made millions. So it's nice to see that they come out, and if they're going to give us a new Star Wars every single year until we hate it, bring out a new movie where it's something fresh each time, and it's something that we haven't seen before, because that's what's going to bring in new audiences, that's what's going to bring in more fans, not just stories about the same family that there are barely any members of left anymore, <laughs> and hopefully after episode 9 we'll be wrapped up. So I think it is great to see Ryan come out and make something new. I think one of the reasons why Marvel's kept going for so long, well it's a decade at this point, is, well nearly a decade, nearly yeah, a decade. Yeah, nearly a decade at this point is because they, while each film has the quippy one-liners and they could be considered very similar, they do branch out with like Winter Soldier being a great espionage story yeah. and then Ragnarok being an all-out comedy and then changing all the different, having sub-genres within it. So Han Solo looks like it's going the way of a comedy. So if they just shake it up and keep it interesting, then I'm excited. Yeah, exactly. And I think one thing we can definitely say about this new trilogy is what an endorsement to Ryan Johnson. Like, Last Jedi must be amazing if they're willing to give him this. If they think... I mean, he's not a man who's made a lot of films, Ryan Johnson. Like, he's done Looper and... I can't even... Brick, yeah? yeah. I mean, for him to then be said, you can go on and you can make our multi-million dollar franchise anew... That's a real endorsement, isn't it? I mean, it's got to be a real testament to how well he's made this movie and the clear confidence that they have in him going forward. I saw his tweet afterwards that just perfectly... He just said, Obviously, I hoped you'd like The Last Jedi anyway, but now I really hope you like The Last Jedi. <laughs> That's amazing. Speaking of Star Wars, The Last Jedi, do you want to talk about the whole cinema thing? Disney's being a... Disney... Yeah, I think this is a really disturbing trend that Disney is like developing, and I hope this is something we don't see going on. Disney is releasing like deals that for every cinema that The Last Jedi is played at, there are certain rules that come with it. It will Disney will receive for every ticket sold sixty five percent of the revenue from the theaters, 
And that's at least 25% more than most theatres because they get about 40, 55% the studio does and then the theatre can use the rest. That's a major profit margin that Disney is then taking back when they're already going to be making millions anyway. And I think it shows a great deal of greed on their part. But what's also troubling is the fact that they are told they have to keep their The Last Jedi in theatres for four weeks if they want to show it at the very least. Otherwise... Disney will then take 5% of everything they've made. And that isn't just on the movie. That's on the, like any merchandise they may give away, like um, popcorn things, like any posters and stuff. So they'll take 5% of everything. And this can potentially bankrupt some really small cinemas. And it's also dreadful because when you look at the really big cinemas, like the ones in LA that want to like, as the year draws to a close and after the hype for Last Jedi has died out, want to play the more Oscar movies that are coming out, want to play the big premieres, they're not going to be able to because they're going to have to keep Last Jedi as their main movie, as the, their title screening. And I think this is just dreadful that Disney is just essentially dominating and corrupting the industry like this by essentially like tying their hands. Like, we know you're going to want this in your cinema, but you're only having it if you do as we say. I think it's dreadful. And I think this is such a shame because... It might just wear people out of The Last Jedi and Star Wars. Because if they do that with every Star Wars film, it'll just be like, oh, yeah, that's still in cinema. And then if a new release comes out, it'll be like, the cinema has to show it at an awkward time because The Last Jedi still has main title screening. So it's just not healthy. Because if it's not making the cinema any more money, then they obviously, because there isn't an interest in it anymore, then they're going to want to pull it back and put something else there. But... And something else it'll also do is it'll cause critical outlash. Like, when it was 2015 and when Force Awakens was coming out, that was been the same deal that was going on for quite a few months. But when Tarantino released The Hateful Eight, he wanted this played in a major cinema in LA. And because Disney said, no, it's got to stay there, Tarantino got into a real kind of like public outcry. Like, this has been here already a month. I think I should have the right to play my movie. The cinema even wanted to have it played. But because of, like, Disney, who then went and said, like, Tarantino badmouths us, people started boycotting The Hateful Eight. People started throwing real hate at it. And that was one of the best movies of 2015. So to see something else potentially happen on the same scale again this year would be really quite worrying, especially given how great some of the movies have been this year. To see the Oscar movies then receive hate and potential problem from moviegoers is a really horrible trend that I hope we don't start seeing more. Another dodgy Disney business practice is um, the LA Times wrote an article about some strange goings-ons with Disney and the state that Disney World's in, like the US state that it's in, and how it does some certain things with like a car park because Disney pay the count, the local council $1 a year for this car park and it cost over a hundred million, I think, for the taxpayers to build this car park. And then they published this article about Disney and Disney now and then they wanted to start doing preview screenings for their critics. So, so then they have reviews ready and they can just go out and then they had all the other major studios there, but Disney said, no, we're not going to show you our films. We're not going to show you... No, we're not going to give you them as previews. You'll get them as the public get them because of this article, because it was biased, because this, that and the other, and we tried to give 
you the correct information. And then the reporter came out and said, we tried to contact you a number of times, but you never gave us anything. And it all went on like that until eventually a number of review sites started to boycott Disney films and said, we're not going to have a big impact on Disney, but we're going to use the only power that we do have over them. And that's the free advertisement from doing reviews for them and talking about the new trailers that they put out. And so then a lot of review sites were then boycotting them until Disney in the end came to a private agreement with the LA Times. This is just dodgy business 101. Yeah, I think it's really like stupid on Disney's part. Like it's really petty on that front as well. Like tax evasion and money is a thing aside, but to openly ban a critic just because they were like bad mouthed you in not a major sense, it's just so like I hate to say petty again, but it's just that entirely. Like and then for other people to then jump on this bandwagon and agree with the news reporters, I think is really commendable because it does say like clearly like we're not gonna put up for things like this. I feel Disney has overstepped the mark with this kind of behaviour and I think it's important that they realise that. It seems very much like Disney's the big guy trying to squash this little guy, but then they didn't realise that no, because they said something unfavorable about them, even though they showed their facts and they showed their reporting afterwards, it just doesn't seem right at all. And that sort of worries me because 20th Century Fox has gone up for sale and yeah. Disney is rumored to be buying it or in talks for buying it. And while on the surface level, that seems like it'd be good with like, the X-Men going over into the MCU. It wouldn't just be that, you get the Fantastic Four as well and they need a good movie made. Exactly, and then you then think they would then literally have everything, most of the dominance of film for the big blockbusters. It would literally just be Disney and Warner Bros for the most part, like. Yeah, and then Sony's off the side and a tiny bit, but even then they're getting into their together with homecoming so yeah it just becomes quite ridiculous when disney has got that much and as much as i do want to see the x-men and the fantastic four in the mcu zach made a point that disney aren't really looking for the smaller character films like logan yeah exactly because imagine if x-men was over at disney we wouldn't have got that masterpiece no we would never receive something else like deadpool we wouldn't get anything like Logan. It would be PG-13 if it was going to be released. Like, not that Disney is all flowers and rainbows. They don't make that kind of content. They just don't. Because like, look at Marvel. They wanted to make something adult, so then they had to go over to Netflix. Yeah, exactly. Like, to have to make another deal with another company just to have something produced in a specific style that you want really just sends the sign that we, if this deal goes ahead... Logan is the last great movie like that that we're going to see because Disney won't make things like that. They'll be interested in like throwing in the X-Men, the Fantastic Four into the franchise that they've already got. And that's a children's franchise. Like, yeah, you get the shit and you get the language and you get the violence every now and then, but you never get much that's going to scar or really upset the family audiences. So you're going to see a lot more like junior versions of these x-men and the fantastic four and we won't get things like logan again don't get me wrong 
I love the MCU. I love the films in it, but not every film has to be like that. No. Whereas, no, which then makes it interesting when there are ones that go out against this, like Logan and like Deadpool, which is what Fox seems to be doing. Like, we wouldn't get the new mutants. We wouldn't get a horror film in that sort of sense. It would be a small Netflix show, or actually, no, because Disney's trying to make their own streaming service yeah. and take away the Netflix original Marvel shows. So, well, maybe that's somewhere where we can start to see a little bit more of like adult entertainment. Like, Netflix has the pup that the Defenders series. Maybe we can start to see a trend like that appearing on this streaming service. Like, it may not happen, but at least if it's going to have to happen, I'd like to see it there. Especially if they are going to be using characters like Deadpool and potentially Wolverine, which I hope they don't in the future. Like, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. isn't a kids' programme, but then again, it's not as bad as Jessica Jones. It's not yeah. as adult as Jessica Jones. So whether that would then all be watered down... We just don't know. We don't know at this point. It also stands to reason that we could see this kind of thing happening on all the properties that Fox owns. Like, if Disney suddenly decides that when they look at shows like Family Guy or Always Sunny, which they will then have the rights to, if they decide they don't want this in their library, they are within every right to get rid of it. And that's a real shame because, while well, I admit Family Guy hasn't been great in years, shows like Always Sunny that has got still a great fan base and it's still being well written i absolutely love it yeah jake here he's a massive fan of it to see that then taken away just because the company doesn't like it and it's not part of their policy and brand would be dreadful because that is a really great and well-made show because 20th century fox while they don't make all the best films in the world with their tv shows they have fx and then they have fox so FX is their more experimental one where they have yeah. Archer and then they have... Fargo, an American Horror Story. Like... Exactly. And then Fox is where they put their big main staples and their big main shows. And then without that, Disney isn't really experimenting with it the same. They're not going out and they're not trying to subvert things and do interesting stuff. Whereas, for example, 20th Century Fox has Fox Searchlight which yeah. do smaller indie films like Juno and the Grand Budapest Hotel. Exactly. Which are absolutely phenomenal. Whereas Disney are more the big main blockbusters. Whereas with 20th Century Fox, it is very much, they have the small subsidiaries that do their own different things yeah. and their own little niches that then build up into the big 20th Century Fox. Exactly. And I mean, this is a company where the most inventive title they can come up with for a Han Solo movie is Solo. So to lose that amount of creativity, to lose that amount of daring experimentation is a real crime in all honesty, because films like Logan, which will prove in time to be an absolute classic, let alone one of the best films of this year, to not see another film like that because the studio is willing to take a risk on it, because it's like Fox and they can take that artistic liberty, they can be like more violent and rude, to then see it be brought over to Disney is a real worrying kind of thing. Especially with how much money Disney's already got. Do they need something else like this? I feel like we are very much shitting on Disney in this episode. Yeah, yeah. Like, But we do like the movies they put out, except 
they don't experiment as much as other studios. No. They know what works. They've tried it. They, they've got a tried and tested formula. They change things here and there, which do make it interesting and do make enjoyable films. And they do do really good films. Yeah. But then not everyone doesn't want a blockbuster all the time. Like people want their Grand Budapest hotels and they yeah, want exactly. all their niche films rather than everything being on this corporate blueprint. Exactly. Yeah, when the likes of Coco comes out, I will be singing Disney's praises. But when they're giving behaviour like this, like we've seen with the theatre incidents and the LA Times scandal, and then we see things like this, it does just make you question Disney a little bit. Like, how much power have they got? And do they just need to take a bit of a step back and think about things? Like when Disney first acquired Lucasfilm with the Star Wars brand, people were saying how this is a terrible decision and they hate Disney and I didn't understand it because I thought well Disney's great and it's the best thing for the franchise and while Disney going over no while Lucasfilm going over to Disney was in fact very beneficial for Star Wars they also did change a lot of things and they cancelled some stuff and they very much made it their own so that sort of begs the question of what are they likely to cancel if they do get 20th Century Fox? And what are they likely to keep? Let's just hope that as this story progresses, FX and the likes of those great comedy shows and movies that Fox does make doesn't go the way of LucasArts and we see potentially great material be lost. Now we're going to conclude the news this week where we discuss some recent sexual scandals that have appeared in the news. We made comments regarding this last week, but we said we weren't going to discuss it because we wanted to take some time to learn the full facts and to see if these allegations were handled properly and if they were in fact true, which they now of course clearly are. So we'll now be discussing recent accusations that have been made against the likes of Kevin Spacey, Louis C.K., Brett Ratner, and just yesterday, in fact, George Decay. We'll be going one by one and discussing kind of what happened and how we feel about this, and then moving on to the next, because this isn't a subject that we feel overly comfortable discussing. But it's important that we respect the people that were hurt and that we do discuss it. So to start, we have Kevin Spacey. He was accused by a member of, I can't remember his name, unfortunately, the Star Trek Discovery cast. Anthony Rappel, yeah. That's the one, that's the one. He came forward and accused Kevin Spacey of, how should I put it, sexual misconduct. Like he um, propositioned him and was quite aggressive with him when he was a teenager and Kevin Spacey later on Twitter while he did apologize for the action said that this was disgusting he also used the opportunity to come out as it were and say that he is a homosexual he now decides to live as a gay man and some controversy was of course caused because of this because he this was seen as kind of a deflection how he was using this to cover up what he'd done. This is probably one of the first times I've ever seen like the LGBTQ community reject someone for coming out. Yeah. Because he did it in such a distasteful way. He used it as almost an excuse for his actions. Yeah, and exactly. 
not at all what it's about. I think the more shocking thing is the fact that instead of like I'm not I'm sure Anthony Rapp is an easily got a hold of man that like you could have called him, arranged something like that. I don't think you need to, to have said anything on Twitter. Like taking that time like just use it to apologize. If you're gonna have to say something, just apologize, say what I've done is wrong. And then don't like, use the next that. Week, yeah. if he if he apologized to him publicly as well as privately, and then the next week, because he felt like he wanted to tell people and because he felt that it was his time to come out, if he then came out, then people would have supported him. But one of the things that I found disgusting, the headlines to start off with, instead of being these allegations to be made against Kevin Spacey, it was Academy Award-winning actor Kevin Spacey comes out as gay. Yeah, it's a real sign of what our media is like when they can focus on something like that far more than they can actual potential rape. Like, to see someone go through something like that, all the attention should be on the likes of Anthony Rapp. It should not be on Spacey. Like, people should be paying attention to what happened to this man, how he can be made better moving forward, and how the industry can learn lessons from what Spacey has done in the future. And also... I think the only real thing you can look to from for Spacey to learn from is for how actors can conduct themselves and if they ever find themselves in a situation like this and learn that places like Twitter or social media are not the correct grounds to be making statements like this about. John Bunthal said he was on a radio show yeah. for The Punisher. He said that while on the set for Baby Driver... He used to look up for. He used to look up to Kevin Spacey. He was he was one of his idols. One of the reasons why he got into acting in the first place. And he said the onset of Baby Driver. Kevin Spacey was just a bully, and yeah. mm. he said that he remembers him completely rubbing him the wrong way, and he said that he lost a ton of respect. And he said he didn't know anything about these this sexual allegation stuff that's come out. But he said that it just completely... He used to look up to this man. Yeah, as as do we. And how he conducted himself on set. He said it wasn't professional. Yeah. And it was petty. Yeah. Also with Kevin Spacey, given that this story has been brought forward, Netflix has unfortunately decided to make the next season of House of Cards the final one. This is devastating to me because it is my favourite Netflix show. It's arguably one of my favourite television shows ever. It's an extremely well-made production. And it's really upsetting to see such an amazing actor go from it, but that's only necessary given what he's done. It's very upsetting, though, because for a time, it seemed as though House of Cards was just going to be cancelled. And that's devastating to think that loads of people can be losing their jobs because of the actions of one man. But it's hence been decided that it will not be cancelled. The next season will just be the final one which I don't have a problem with because I believe Robin Wright can handle that ship herself. I've said it from season one, she is the best character and actress on that show and can more than well like carry the ship and go forward with it because she will not only bring out a final season that is amazing, but I think will give something that's so good that the memories of him and his absence from the show aren't dwelled on too long because... He doesn't deserve attention like that now. When Netflix first halted production, they then 
got the whole cast and the crew in and they were like so does everyone feel safe does everyone feel comfortable and that's something that i really respect netflix yeah. for but it with all this with all these stories and these allegations coming out against all these people in the entertainment industry it does beg the question of how close are the actors to their work like how can you still enjoy their work even though this has come out because i absolutely adore and love the movie seven yeah but what does that then mean moving forward with watching it now that this has come out about it because it's not like other reality stars that stuff's come out in the past these are classic films rather than just reality shows these are classic films and it sort of begs the question can we what does this mean the same way again yeah and will it then not be shown on tv with reruns and yeah. does it then make it not okay to watch it because of what the actor's done or, or... Can we look at the merits of the cast and the director in some cases and everyone else who worked on it because for example a ridley scott film that was coming out in just over a month just after christmas yeah they completely removed kevin spacey from it they recast him. I can't remember who they recast him. Uh, Christopher Plummer. Christopher Plummer. Um, and that's... Christopher Plummer's the man that Ridley Scott originally wanted in the film to play this character. But then Sony said, no, we want a bigger name. And then now this has come out, Ridley Scott went to Sony and said, I, want, I don't want him in the film. I want to reshoot it. Because from what it sounds like, he was very much isolated in his scenes when it was just him. And Sony said, yeah, that's fine. And I think the film will be better for it. And it will also, I think it's gained the film attention that it wasn't necessarily going to get. Yeah, exactly. Because it doesn't seem like it's going to be a big blockbuster. It seemed more like it was going to be critically received well. And it was more Oscar baity than it was going for the money. Exactly. So I think that was a good decision on on Sony's behalf. It really was. It's a shame as well that we can't sort of see the same trend happening with other films because another person that's come out and has been accused is Louis C.K. He was accused of... Louis C.K. was accused of sexual misconduct where people say they didn't... He didn't try and put himself on them, but... There was propositioning and... They said that he propositioned something and the two up-and-coming comedians thought he was joking, so they said, oh, yeah, sure. Then actually started doing it. But he never did anything to them. He just did it to himself. And another person that came forward said that he was... She was talking to him on the phone and then she could hear him doing it. Yeah. And he has... It, this all came out on the day of his premiere of the film I Love You Daddy, yeah. which is a film we've previously spoken about. We spoke we about the trailer and we said, oh, we were looking forward to it. Yeah. But he cancelled the premiere and he said, he's come out and said, yes, this happened. I'm not making any excuses for it. What I did was wrong. And I think he's just going away for a bit to sort of get himself together, get his act together, sort himself yeah. out and make sure that he doesn't do it again. And it's a real, real shame because while I Love You Daddy wasn't going to be a classic, 
it was still a movie that people worked on that they should be paid for that the likes of Chloe Moretz and Roseburn they put a lot of their time into while he doesn't deserve his moment in the sun ever again in my opinion the likes of the actors and the crew and the cast that was involved in this movie does because they worked hard on this and it's a shame that their efforts are essentially again spoiled by one man's heinous actions I think while people have their opinions on if he should come back and if he should, like you said, have his moment in the sun, I think he will because he'll let this go and he'll take a moment out to then let people digest it and then he'll come back. With a new look on the situation, I think. Yeah, because he is one of the biggest comedians in the world at the moment. And I don't think that because he didn't, it wasn't sexual assault, it was just misconduct. That's not me saying that what he did was fine, but that's me saying that I think that people will still enjoy his content and I see people giving him a second chance if he has genuinely changed. Yeah, I think there is, there's always room to give someone a second chance in this industry. And while this man is someone who is quite a high stature, like he's a, like a really well-known comedian, like an actor and a director, and the same with Brett Ratner, as we'll soon find out, like a big director, I personally think while there is room to give them a second chance, I feel you just do something where it's like, yeah, you can come back, but you're at the bottom now. Like, yeah. you're a stagehand or you're... A production worker like you don't get these big projects again like you've got to work back up and really you've got to do what's right and you've kind of got to restore our faith and trust in you because louis if louis ck can come out and apologize like he has other people should be able to do the same and then put the rest of their career forward if they still want to be a part of this industry which clearly a number of them would go forward and try and re-establish what they've essentially ruined which is our trust in them take time to restore the quality of their craft and make us want to see them again because we now trust and respect them again and not just come back and say like oh i'm still louis ck oh i'm still brett ratner give me all this brett ratner is now someone we will be discussing and he was accused quite largely of inappropriate behavior and language and my particular example that I'll be citing on this occasion is that of Ellen Page, yeah. who played um, Shadow Cat in the X Men franchise, and she specifically cites to um, X Men: The Last Stand, where she was repeatedly, like, essentially bullied by Ratner, who like repeatedly said things to her, like, um, like along the lines of, "Oh, who do I have to get to sleep with you before you realize you're gay?" And while that's an appropriate bar it's by itself, that's disgusting for someone to have to hear, I think it's even more upsetting because Ellen Page at the time had not come out to herself and to have someone like this force their kind of thinking on you and insult you for not really yet knowing who you are, that's disgusting Like for anyone to think about saying. And for that to happen, I think is clear justification why the likes of Brett Ratner shouldn't be in that industry or around people where he can make that kind of comment. It's sort of with Kevin Spacey and with Brett Ratner, it shows the two contrasts because Kevin Spacey 
his work and what he's done, his performances he's given are really good. That's one of the reasons why before this these stories came out, he was one of our favourite actors. Exactly. Whereas it's not even like Brett Ratner makes particularly good films. Nope. <laughs> like, at all. And there's the story that Gal Gadot's said how she's not going to sign on for the next Wonder Woman sequel if Brett Ratner's still involved in the franchise. And while neither Brett Ratner or Gal Gadot have actually confirmed this, it was just an inside source on a newspaper. I think it is still sending the right message, even if it's not something that's actually happened. Because Gal Gadot is now seen as such a big feminist icon yeah exactly like to little girls in fact like, yeah they go out as halloween they go as one because she is now that symbol of like girl power and i think for her to come forward and take a stance on these situations for her to say something about this and to be someone who hasn't just like offered condolences to those who were affected which is of course important that we do but to make an actual stand and I know there are people making stand but to do something like this on such a public level and potentially risk your job security because while I don't doubt they would automatically pick Gal Gadot over Brett Ratner mm. that is questionable for any actor or actress to do because you do not ever know when you've reached such a level that they will consider picking you so I think for her to take such a stance is not only brave, but very commendable. I think that's one of the reasons why all these allegations have stayed quiet, because they have been these higher, bigger figures in exactly. the entertainment industry that they've then been scared for their own job security. Yeah, it's like a real commentary on how big can people get before they can really be touched. Like, how... How did they get this yeah, much power? How can anyone be allowed to say something like that? Like, we look at it on a political level more than anything but to look at it on this entertainment level i don't think until in recent times it's given enough press and given enough attention so to now see it have that i think conversations and steps forward can start to see this sort of behavior not reoccur and happen again which if we had our right as i'm sure many people would agree it should never happen also this is only loosely related to this between the difference between a male director and a female director of Patty Jenkins and Zack Snyder they've released the pictures for the Amazonians from Justice League and then they compared it to the Amazonians from Wonder Woman and in Wonder Woman they're wearing battle armour and they're these strong women whereas in Justice League they're quite scantily dressed and they're more sexualized and it just shows yeah. that the male gaze is still such a prominent thing yeah. in the entertainment industry and in the direction of films and even if it was unintentional on Zack Snyder's part it still shows how they've gone from being this powerful woman race in like a fictional universe in fictional yeah in the Wonder Woman film to now they're very much more sexualized rather yeah. than actually being shown as strong characters. I'm sure they are strong characters. Well, I hope they are. Yeah. But it's not even like they started scantily dressed and then now they've got more armor. They had more armor. They had more clothes. It suited the characters because they were warriors. Whereas now it's not even like it's more protection. It's less protection. It doesn't even fit the character and what they need. We're now going to talk about, very quickly, the final person who has been accused. This has been with 
been within the last 24 hours. George Takei, Star Trek star, he played Mr. Sulu in the original series, has been accused of rape. He was unavailable at the time when he was accused to have a comment, because apparently he was on a plane. But since then, he has, like, denied said allegations, like, doesn't understand where it's come from. And it's very unfortunate to see someone who has such a prolific stance on anti-rape, who has, like, said many provocative tweets to Donald Trump saying similar things. And it's unfortunate to see what is, while maybe unintended, actual hypocrisy here. It's unfortunate to see that someone like this has come out and done something like that. It just seems like this, it all started with the Harvey Weinstein story. And then now everyone's, like the victims of this are now feeling supported in coming out and telling their stories. And it just shows how corrupt the whole situation is and how yeah. people can't just stick with it anymore and how it has to change and how it can't stay like this. Stephen Amell, the one, um, the one who plays, he plays Oliver Queen in Arrow. He's come out and said, if you're not actively a part of the solution, then you are a part of the problem. Because even if you don't yeah. see it, no, even if you don't agree with their actions and you still think that it's wrong, if you're not actively trying to solve it, then that's still a part of the problem and it's not yeah. progressing where people are and not progressing people into trying to fix this. Yeah. It's both a blessing and a curse of this entire instance, how we're going to see, I'm sure in more recent weeks and months to come, we're going to see more people be brought out like this, more people that we potentially know and enjoy. And it's going to be upsetting to see them accused and it's going to be upsetting to see the victims accused and given hate. Like I know Anthony Rapp has been given a great deal of hate and it'll be unfortunate to see people have to live through these experiences again. But there is the real blessing that people will come together at this. People will become united. There will be become, there'll be a lot more conversations about this. There'll be a lot more activity to prevent this sort of thing happening again. And hopefully the industry will change for the better. And that's ultimately what it is all about with this industry, changing, adapting to the times. And in this modern society that we live in, in today, we just can't allow this behavior. And I hope that people within the industry realize that and that changes are made to enforce it. Amen. Uh, before we discuss episode four of The Walking Dead, uh, season eight, we're going to be discussing episodes two and three because we were unfortunately away when these episodes were on and we weren't able to discuss them. We'll briefly be going over them before we discuss the main highlight of this season so far, which is episode four. Meh. Um... I think the fact that we don't remember precisely what happened in these episodes sort of explains a lot because was it episode two Jesus and Tara had their thing? Yeah. And, and then, then episode think... three Morgan had his I do not die. Yeah. And then his like beautiful fight with Jesus, which I really enjoyed. It was a good moment. I think these both these episodes had moments like the episode two had Tara and Jesus, and then this one, episode three, had Jesus and Morgan, and they had their moments of, yeah. like, the whole, oh, who was right, so that just on Talking Dead afterwards they could have yeah. a poll on who people were more inclined for. 
and then they have their meme-worthy moments where they'll kill off Morales or they'll <laughs> do jokes at Gregory's dispense just so that people can make fun of it on the internet afterwards. Though we did both have problems with the Morales situation. I think the primary reason he was even brought back at all was the writer's fault. Damn, we haven't really got a very good conclusion to this episode. This guy's within the area, let's call him in, offer him $200 to appear for five minutes, and then we'll get rid of him. Yeah, then Daryl just straight up shot him. So while it's an interesting development for Daryl and how the events of last series completely broke him, I feel like he could have done that with a more minor character, whereas bringing back someone from series one, yeah, it, it showed Rick how far he's come, what he's doing now, and is making him think about it. But they could have easily just got him to waste, like, say, Morales was there with one of his mates and they both called Negan and then Daryl came in and shot one of them. Then they still had Morales and they had, like, a wolf-type situation, yeah. like, from Series 6, where they had that one wolf that they had locked up and then he, like, kept taunting them and talking to them. Something I feel they really missed with that character was back in Season 3 when Andrea, who had been away with the governor, she came back into the group and was suddenly like the outsider. She didn't know, like for instance, what happened to Shane. She's like, oh, where's Shane? He's dead. And was like suddenly the outsider of the group. I think that would have been something really interesting to try with Morales because now the group is so much bigger and you've only got, what is it? Yeah, now that Glenn's gone, you've only got four members of that original group left. So to maybe see someone literally in the show make a comment on it would have just been really interesting to see and then just show again how far this group has really come. Yeah, like if he came in and said, oh, I can tell you guys have had lots of series finales because you've lost most of the main cast. Yeah. I feel like with the way Daryl's going, especially in these two episodes, um, it felt a lot like they're going to have to do what they did for that little girl in series five where she couldn't tell the difference between the walkers and stuff and she kept like... Yeah. Well, her problem is she didn't kill them, whereas Daryl... Uh, is just going around shooting people left, right and centre. And I feel that they that Rick's going to have to put them down and going to have a look at the flowers moment sort of thing. And if, if they do have the confidence to kill yeah. off Daryl, I reckon that would be an interesting way and a good send-off for the character if done properly. That was what the original plan for the 100th issue of The Walking Dead was. It was going to be Glenn was going to turn on Rick and threaten to kill Carl and because Glenn had just become such a liability and a danger to the group, Rick was then going to have to murder him, which was then, of course, cut because they needed to put in the Negan character. But that would be something brilliant to see somewhat of symbolically brought to life on the show. Like, if you can kill off someone who has been that big to the fandom and has grown so close to Rick, it would be such a great way to pay off the character and, again, make his death worthwhile, other than to just bring in more attention. Episode 4, though. The best of this series so far. Yeah, I really genuinely enjoyed this. I mean, I've grown really, really tired of the character of Ezekiel. Like, I feel like he's just there to make speeches now and be a bit of comic relief. That's literally what he's become to me, a comic relief character. But this episode, like, the actor who plays him and the character itself was sensational. I really enjoyed what was done to him and just seeing him be broken like that. I absolutely love this actor because at first I was annoyed because I wanted David Fennoy to, pay, yes. uh, to play King Ezekiel. But it shows that they cast the right dude. Definitely. And Jerry was amazing. I love Jerry. Yes. He's just brilliant in this episode. There was a bit of a Jerry X machina, as it were. 
Yeah, I, I knew we couldn't go five minutes without Jane mentioning Cherry X Machina. <laughs> Shiva, though. We're we not going it. spoilers yet, Zach. We're not going spoilers yet. <laughs> I, I like this episode because it's on the smaller scale. And yeah. that's what Walking Dead does best because the past few episodes have been all-out war. And while this is still a part of that war, it's more a character-driven story where it has, like, the moral decisions with Carol and then yeah. it has... It's just a lot smaller moments and that's exactly what the show does best because the best episodes are the character-driven ones. Yeah, exactly. It's reminding me a lot of when season four returned after the mid-season finale and you had the group divided in so many different levels... And that is some of my fondest memories of The Walking Dead, when you had these individual stories where the characters could come together and learn things, like, in pairings that we hadn't yet recently experienced. Like, they tried to do this a few episodes ago when you had Tara and Jesus, like, argue, and now they're doing it again with, like, Carol and Ziku, and they're going through things together and they're learning things. And it is primarily on this small scale, which is why it works so well, because it isn't... While the all-out war stuff is interesting to see, it's great action it does harken back to what the show is at its core, which is people learning to deal with these things, people having to struggle to make decisions they don't want to and to unfortunately lose people, which is, I think, what this episode was able to brilliantly do again. Because we haven't seen the likes of that in a long while, especially with it being the whole like, war storyline. And now, going into spoilers. CG tigers are expensive, man. <laughs> what were we expecting? <laughs> we knew it had to go. Robert Kirkman said on the Talking Dead afterwards that when he was first debating on should I add a tiger to it? He was like, no, I'm just thinking of how they'll actually do it in the show. This is a comic book. We can easily just draw a tiger. We're adding the tiger. They can yeah. sort out themselves <laughs> on the show. But, That's brilliant. But again, going back to the character stuff, just how much Shiva meant to King Ezekiel yeah. and <clears throat> just how all of all of the kingdom's like soldiers just gone. Yeah. And the effect that has on him, and then Jerry's just so like, you're a great guy, and he's just like, I'm no one, I'm not. I'm, I'm just some guy. Yeah. Which is the name of the episode. And when Ezekiel was first introduced and they had the tiger, I thought, oh God, this is just way too over the top. And then it yeah. was the heart-to-heart -heart moment with Carol, yeah, where exactly. he dropped in his persona and he became himself, and he was like, I'm just doing this for them. No bullshit. Just... And I think that was great how they kind of linked the ending of this episode back to that conversation because in that conversation he says like how the kingdom was founded how he had rescued shiva and then how they had bonded and then how people started to follow him out of sheer respect and awe at the fact that he had essentially domesticated a tiger something that and no human would be able capable of and when you see the kingdom's forces leaving like the kingdom in this episode and he's got shiva with him to then see him come back in with not Shiva is kind of symbolically how the heart of the kingdom is destroyed because people followed him because they believe he could aspire to greatness and do things like domesticate a tiger. And now to see Shiva go and him to come back with no one besides Carol and Jerry, it was a real sign of like how broken not only he, the character, is, but how the community is as well. It's great to see Jerry finally use that axe. Although, what was that chain made out of? Adamantium. <laughs> Like, you're giving how... yourself a lot of press for your tweets here, Jay. <laughs> a lot of press. Like, how could that axe not have broken it? Or at least, how could 
the chain have broken yeah. the axe how weak was the wood and the craftsmanship in that like jerry deserves yeah. a much better made axe i feel like you're giving a little bit too much attention to the character of jerry <laughs> i love jerry he's brilliant again he's just comic relief man it's just it's kind of another person just to fill the void but he does it well he does it well Comment I do want to make, though, on a previous episode, because we have forgotten to say it, is the character of Aaron and Eric. I felt dreadful for Aaron that we lost Eric. But this show's biggest casualty at the moment is assuming that we care. <laughs> and I did not care about Eric at all. I don't really care that much about Aaron's reaction. I like the character, but do not care about Eric at all. I like to see where it goes with the baby, though. I love how they've given Ross Marquand the opening title credit. That was that was nice to notice. And um, I'd say with Eric, all they needed to do was, even if it was just that episode, add in like a five minute thing. No, not even five minutes. A 30 second thing of them getting ready in their house. Do you know what they did with the Zack character in the start of season four? This guy's just come in, he's got a funny little jokey thing with Daryl. You think he's okay, then you gave a little bit more of a damn when he got murdered. With Eric, you just didn't care. Like, if they killed him when they first introduced him in, was it series five or six or... Probably halfway through season five, so yeah. Yeah. When they, if they did it when they first introduced him, like, towards the end of series five, then that would have been interesting because, and a lot harder... Like much more of an impact because he was still fresh in our minds he was still doing stuff rather than just being basically absent and just in the background yeah. it's the same sort of similar thing that they have with glenn because don't get me wrong i absolutely loved glenn and i was devastated when he left but throughout series six there was the whole thing with him on the bin on if he survived or not and then he did nothing throughout the entirety of series six yeah, exactly. which then made the series seven opener have less of an impact which is why i then when i was as i was first watching it i i was horrified from the prosthetics and exactly what they did to him but it was only later when i was re-watching like series one and two and three where i actually got upset about it because that's when i realized like oh he's gone yeah whereas with just the when I watched it, I had the recent memory of series six in my mind where he did nothing. Yeah. But then, because I felt like I'd used up all my emotion on him when we thought he'd died towards the beginning, which was silly. Yeah. All in all, I think we are seeing some actual quality episodes of The Walking Dead make a return. I've gone on record to say I wasn't a big fan of the season premiere, the 100th episode, and... Like we said, two and three really weren't that great because we can barely remember them. But I think four is signs of a bit of a return to form, like they were saying. Like there was some great character moments, there was some well done action, and it actually incorporated what I love most about the show the walkers themselves. They were back in it, they were a threat, same as the people. And I think we've, especially next week's episode, where it promises to be Gabriel and Negan and something of like their relationship being shown on screen. It will be brilliant to see how these episodes go forward now that we have seen there is quality to come back to the show. Yeah, this episode was sort of a reminder like, oh, this is a zombie show. This isn't just shooting at walls and shooting at cars because you're in an apocalypse. You're trying to save your ammunition. You're not just wasting it. So that's it for this week. We'll be back next week to discuss the future episodes where we'll be returning to 
The Jeffrey Dean Morgan Show. Now on to our primary review of this week. It's Marvel's latest and greatest, Thor Ragnarok. This is the 17th film based in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and is the 17th Marvel Studios film to open number one on its given weekend with box office numbers, which just shows how powerful Marvel is and how popular it is. But Zach, what did you think of Taika Waititi's Thor Ragnarok? I really, really enjoyed this movie. I think it's a definite top 10 for the MCU as a whole. We're coming up to 10 years of the MCU now. It's going to be next year that it's going to be the 10 year anniversary of Iron Man. And throughout the whole run of the MCU, we've been seeing films where they're half and half. It's half and half superhero film. It's half and half a spy espionage. Half and half superhero film. It's half and half a heist film. This was the first film, though, where I think it felt like a straight up comedy with a little bit of superhero on the side. I thought this was a really, really great movie and was one of arguably Taika Waititi's best films to yet be made. There's some bold claims there, boy. Some bold claims. One of. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed this film. Like, people talk about the superhero bubble and how it's going to burst at some point. And they talk about the superhero films that stand above the rest. And they're the ones that aren't just superhero films, but they are other ones in themselves, like The Dark Knight's a crime thriller, um, Logan's a Western. And this this one, I'm not sure if comedy is going to stand out as the yeah. rest, because a lot of the Marvel films are funny, but this is definitely up there with Guardians. A debate could be had between the two on which are the funnier ones. Whereas this one, you can tell it's a lot more improvisational. Oh, Whereas with yeah. Guardians, you can tell that James Gunn's just a genius. Yeah. I think this is the best character movie for all of the Marvel films. Like, don't get me wrong, James Gunn does amazingly the Guardians, but Taika Waititi set out with the bold, bold task of trying to make Thor the most interesting Marvel character a hard task after you've seen the likes of Thor The Dark World. And yet, with this movie, he made Thor one of the most interesting characters in the world. We see him go through, like, str like struggles in this movie. He loses family members, like, he loses his hammer, which we all know, not a spoiler as such. He, like, loses his friends, he loses all sense of who he is, like, and then he has to, like, battle with friends. He goes through so much in this movie and still remains an excellent character who is just so developed that he can now rival the likes of like Hemsworth no what was it Hemsworth he can now rival the likes of Chris Evans and Robert Downey Jr for prime billing like in screen time because he's that interesting a character now he's so funny in this movie and so well thought out and developed I was now more willing to watch him than I was the likes of Tom Hiddleston who has been the best part of every four movie so far yeah, this is definitely the best of the Thor franchise, hands down, no question yeah. about it. But would you say it's the best, not ensemble film, but would you, what would you say is the best Marvel solo film? For me personally, the best Marvel solo film is the original Iron Man, but I think this is now a close contender. Like, it dives so well into the character of Thor, shakes up the mythos, and yet still retains some of the classic features in such a like beautifully balanced way that it just makes this movie like really unique and stupidly fresh to be able to watch it's just fun 
Like Taika Waititi said, you you watch all these films and they're just slow and they're depressing. And he said, well, they're good and they definitely have their place. He said he remembers going to the cinema when he was younger and just having fun and coming out smiling. And he said that's the sort of films that he wants to make. And that he's definitely achieved that with this. Mm. Because it is just the sort of film where you want to get your mates around, you want to watch and you want to have a laugh. Yeah, I think he's also succeeded in the sense that he's made, quite frankly, one of the most independent Marvel movies there yet is. While the argument can be made that you do need to have seen certain Marvel movies to understand some of the parts of this... Realistically, this is for me one of those Marvel films where you can just go in and enjoy it. Like this is the third four film, and yet realistically, I would not have a problem if this was the first. Like if you know the guy, he's a lightning guy. He's got a hammer. He's got a bit of an asshole brother. You can go in this movie and really, really enjoy it. They re-establish the mythos. Like they get you, they get you to know the character, and then they shake it up in such a way so that new people can come into it and really enjoy it. That may be a little bit questionable when you think about the Hulk character but certainly when it comes to the character of Thor this is a great introduction to the character if people have seen him in previous films and have been disappointed by him I'd say with just the visual direction and the visual aesthetic of this film the CGI looks great yeah definitely which it would when you spend hundreds of millions on on the budget <clears throat> but I'm not sure if do you reckon Taika directed the action himself or he got someone else to do it and he was just there for the improv of the comedy? I'd like to think that he did it for himself. Like, you obviously have, like, people come in and, like, choreograph this stuff. But no, I like to think that he was very on the ground for this kind of stuff. Like, he was involved a lot of it because it is very similar to James Gunn in the sense of this is his movie. You can see his fingerprints all over it, like, with certain actors that he uses that we'll get onto in a moment. <laughs> and, like, certain, like how it's scripted, like how the comedy is played out. So I think he would have tried to make as much of an effort to get as involved in this as he could. I think it would have been something that he would have directed, like, and it would have been a new challenge for him to try to take, and he clearly did well. This has one of the best action sequences in, in probably the MCU, and it's the opening scene, and it has yeah. a shot that I've wanted in a Thor film, for ages it's just following the hammer yeah milner as it's going through all these people and it's just i'm so happy that they finally brought it to screen yeah it was a beautiful swan song for milner like i thought it was so well done and they made that an inanimate object comedic like they made it pretty much a character and the character Korg says it losing the hammer was equivalent to losing a loved one and it really was in this movie like they gave it that beautiful shot and they made it really great. And then you miss the hammer as soon as it's gone. Kenneth Branagh actually said in the original Thor movie, Mjolnir? Mjolnir? That sounds really, really hard to pronounce. Can we just change the name? And both Zach Penn and Stan Lee firmly told him no. <laughs> and then in the For the Dark World movie, they decided to have Kat Denning's character mispronounce the name every single time just so they can make reference to that because it is a stupidly annoying name. Put some vowels in it, please. I always thought that until I learned how to pronounce it, and now I'm just pleased that I know how to say Milner. <laughs> yeah. What would you say about the Doctor Strange cameo? Would you say that was forced, or did you like it? I really, really liked it, because what I was worried about going into this film was that this is going to be the start of the Marvel duo team-up movies, where we're going to see characters start coming into them, 
and it's going to be a script that is devised solely to bring characters together, which this movie wasn't when it had Hulk. And that was what I was worried it was also going to be when we had Doctor Strange coming in. I was thinking, oh god, it's just going to be someone to give exposition. But he really wasn't. He played a really comedic role. And when he left, when we didn't need to see the character anymore, he served his story function. We, he wasn't seen again, he wasn't mentioned again. Which is, I think, something that the MCU as a whole needs to try to reach. That if they're gonna, they should be able to bring in characters like this, because they've got this bigger universe, they should be able to bring them in to sell, like... To provide little story functions and then go away and i thought he was really well used in this movie like we know he had to be there to like give that exposition but i thought he played a really comedic role and the scene where he's teleporting for around was for me one of the funniest scenes in the film especially when you look at his treatment of loki as well <laughs> i have been falling for 30 minutes <laughs> My favourite moment of it all was just when he says, listen here, you second-rate sorcerer, and then just Strange just banishes him. It's just, it was absolutely hilarious. I'd say that something that the MCU has done really well with is costumes, but Doctor Strange's costume seemed, while it was very much comic accurate, it seemed sort of off a bit to me, because his gloves look like oven mittens, and whereas they've usually done a good job with, like... Thor's costume, for example, they've updated what could just be a cheesy 80s costume and they've made it look cool. But here they... I'm not really sure what happened because it is slightly different to the one that we saw in the Doctor Strange film. But, I don't know, that's just tiny, tiny nitpick. Yeah, the bigger nitpick for me is the fact that he's now wearing the eye of Agamotto after the character had said to him, like, oh, it will require further years of mastery and training, and it appears, like, three weeks later, he's now wearing the eye and has mastered the use of an Infinity Stone. So that was something that just annoyed me. I have a little uh, theory and prediction corner for Infinity War. I feel that Thanos is going to, like, kill someone as big as Iron Man, or he's going to kill... Like the like the foreshadowing they had in Age of Ultron yeah. where the whole team's just lying there. And then I feel that Doctor Strange is going to come in and then he's going to use the Iron Magamoto and then reverse it. it and then they're going to kill like a second... Then they're going to kill like Falcon or something. Yeah, oh god, I hope Falcon goes. I despise that character. But I think that would be something really hilarious to see in Infinity War. I think we'll now have to dive into a little bit of spoilers because we are going to have to discuss where we think this movie is going to lead the future of the MCU. And I think it's going to certainly lead it into a promising pace because, like, this is luckily a Marvel film where there isn't a lot of universe building, there isn't a lot of sequel baiting, but there were two very distinct scenes. There's, like, the scene where Loki gets his eyes on the Tesseract, he sees it after that after, after the events of the Avengers, and he, like, sees it and thinks, ah. And then also where Thanos comes in at the end, and I think these are two really interesting scenes. With the bit where Loki sees the Tesseract, do you reckon before Asgard explodes, he puts it in his pocket? Yeah, I would not be surprised if he had done that. And I think there'll be a scene within Infinity War where Thanos like, sees that, and that will be the first of like the Infinity Stones that he collects. I also feel that in Infinity War, it's going to be like a big emotional thing where he gets the Mind Stone from Vision, then like Vision yeah. just dies, and it's like, no! I think they'll do a Deus Ex Machina with... Um, a Jerry X Machina. A Jerry X Machina, I apologise. I think they'll do one of those with Vision, like he'll die, but they'll bring him back because there is a lot of fan love for Vision. Like, people have come in... I like his fashion. Yeah, I love Vision. He's my favourite Avenger. Like, I think hmm. there's, there's room for him to come back in these future ones. So I would like to maybe see him be saved. 
Something that I also love about this film is it fixes one of the biggest plot holes in the MCU, and that's not the Spider-Man Homecoming six yeah. years later. It's the... It's the left-handed infinity. Yeah. <laughs> and Helen just comes in and goes, fake. That I was, was like, that's that was such a small detail. Yeah. But I was so thankful that it was included because it's been something that's annoyed me for years. It just, it's a real testament to Kevin Feige's attention to detail throughout his masterful universe. Like how, while he doesn't tell the directors to put certain like massive plot elements he does just tell them to put in the tiny little bits and it just shows how much the people at marvel are paying attention to what the people say although they are releasing a big like fold out uh, sheet saying exactly when everything's based in the continuity because of yeah. the spider-man homecoming title card that literally just ruined it all so now they kevin just, feige is just having to go back and sort it all out they just dug all. themselves a hole there they could have just said some years later, and then you wouldn't have this whole debacle. Why did you precisely have to say eight years later? It's just like, why dig yourself that hole? You've gotten this far on ambiguity. Keep going, you know it works. It's like, what happened to Abomination? We don't care, just keep going. Tim Roth is, he deserves more. He does. But this film is colourful, and there's been loads of video essays on how Marvel films look sort of ugly because they don't have the colour saturation, so the yeah. colour doesn't pop out of the screen. Whereas in this one, you can tell that it does. Especially with, what's it called, like the Devil's Anus or something like that? Yeah, that yeah. was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it looked absolutely brilliant. Like, and it wasn't just on a CGI level. I thought it was like on a practical and costume level as well. Yeah. Like everyone in this movie is very bribe and vibrant and colourful, especially like when you look at characters like the Grandmaster. Like even just some of the sets, like when they were... It's my birthday. It's my birthday. <laughs> Just stop. Like, even when you just looked at some of the sets in, like, the junkyard that he landed on, like, it was also colourful. And when, like, they go into the parade and they've got the Hulk yeah. parade, everyone loves the Hulk, and it's just really well made. I thought there were two really obvious and dodgy CGI shots that I noticed. One, Hella's mask. Oh, God, yeah. There that were that was obvious in a couple of times. Like, oh, no. And also you can tell that they had a last minute location change because even in the first trailer, yeah. when they show Milner, Rip Milner, um, it was in a city and then they had Odin as a homeless man living on the streets, whereas they changed it. So now you can tell Anthony Hopkins does not want to be there. Oh, good grief. Yeah. He's become very much, give me my paycheck and I'll read whatever it is you want to say. Like you did that with Transformers. He doesn't know what was going on in this movie. He, he You could tell he was having fun as loki oh yeah like that, that was, was like oh shit oh shit that was my favorite that was just so good i loved how inventive it was where thor threw milner and then he had his hand behind oh, odin's yeah, well, loki's head like, and he was like yeah. i'm calling it back i'm calling it back that was a great scene i was like fuck because me having total disregard for for the dark world not being able to remember a single character's name from it <laughs> I don't even know what the elf was called. The Dark World was so forgettable. After Zack and I saw this, Zack was like, I completely where, where was Thor's mum? And I was like, he she died in the Dark World. Oh, uh, oh. For the Dark World was so forgettable that I literally, the first time I saw Odin in this movie, it took me about a good five minutes to register that, oh crap, yeah, it was Loki. It wasn't actually Odin. Like, I thought, like, Odin's just having a bit of a Sunday stroll and a bit of a sit-down. And then I realised, oh, actually, shit, no, that's actually Od Loki. 
I would say one of the this definitely does have the MCU problem of a weak villain. Like it didn't oh, need yeah. it didn't need her to bring in this big backstory and this big everything. It could have easily just been something else. And also yeah. like the zombie army that could have yeah, it's another faceless CGI army that pissed me off. What would have made that better was if she said to the Asgardians like, "Will you fight with me?" And then like a couple of like handful of them said yeah, yeah. and then they were the ones that they fought at the. Like, say, yeah, ev- even just instead of killing Thor's friends... Which I loved, because I hate those characters. <laughs> but instead of killing Thor's friends, if instead they joined Hela, and then Thor had to fight them, I-, I thought that would have been an interesting character development for them, rather than just being, oh no, we're now dead. I don't know, it, it does just fall under the... Oh, look at me, I'm the worst, I'm the worst person to have, oh no, I'm dead. Yeah. I think now that we've reached that point, we are going to go into character. Like, we'll go character by character. And we will be discussing the star of the movie, Korg. (laughs) But first, let's start with, I think, who was the standout character of this movie, and that was Valkyrie. I thought she was really great. Tessa Thompson was brilliant in this, and it makes me desperate to see her in more. Like, she was great in Westworld, but she was even better in this because you can just tell how much fun everyone's having on the Oh, set. yeah, yeah. She, I was, like, curious as to what she was going to be like as a character. I was thinking it was going to be the whole... It's the love interest character. She was just going to be a new version of Lady Sif because she wasn't present in this movie for some reason. I thought that was what it was going to be, but I was then pleasantly surprised to see, like, how brilliant a character she was. She was... Honestly, one of the film's funniest characters. The relationship she had with the Hulk was really great. I know you from somewhere. Yeah, I know you from somewhere. And then to see her, like, beating the crap out of Chris Hemsworth was a very pleasant sight because that just, like, made me think, yeah, he's not a god. Puny god. <laughs> now you know what it feels like. Yeah, that was another brilliant scene. I think Tom Hiddleston, as well as Loki in this film, while I think he had nothing to do, he was just kind of there because they needed Loki. He was one of the film's funniest parts. Like, he had some really great lines. Like, when he returns to save the day, it's like, Your saviour has arrived! <laughs> <laughs> and although Matt Damon maybe could have done a better job as him, as this film quite clearly proved, I do think Tom Hiddleston was great in it. I loved the whole meta thing of the theatre being, like, the first Thor being, well, it was the Dark yeah. World scene, but the first two Thors being played out in theatre and how it had... Uh, the Hemsworth brother from Westworld as Thor, yeah. and how it had Sam Neill and it. Oh, yeah, absolutely hilarious. And then uh, you've got the um, the social worker from Hunt for the Wilder People, and this is the Grandmaster's assistant. Was just she's the first um character. Oh, I can't remember the publishing thing, but Marvel a while ago bought a small comic company, and she's the first character to be brought into the MCU. That's from that company oh, and not right, an official right. Marvel character. Oh, that's fantastic. That's a nice little bit oh, of trivia. I can't remember her name, but you'll get you it. You'll get N- it. Nice little nod for you there. <laughs> Let's discuss Jeff Goldblum, though. Loved him. Jeff Goldblum as Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, he was literally the personification of what people on the internet think he's like in real life, when he clearly isn't. In, no, in interviews, there was a Facebook Live one with Ali Plum, who does the Radio 1 reviews. Yeah. And it was him and Tekawa Titi. <laughs> and he, 
Ali Plum kept trying to ask him questions. Jeff Goldblum was just going off on tangents, like, <laughs> oh no, and then he'd go completely off on one. And then Tyker's there trying to be a genuinely nice dude. He's like trying to join in with Goldblum's jokes, yeah. but then he's trying to answer the questions at the same time. I don't care. I could listen to like Jeff Goldblum just talk about things just for 60 hours. That is just the most amazing human being on the planet. He's just, he's like in his 60s. He looked great for his age. I'd say this is probably one of the first films where, like, Marvel films, where they've had the director go on the press tour as well because yeah, of how much brilliant. of a personality yeah. Tyker is and how yeah. great he is. And this film almost allows me to forgive him for Green Lantern. We do not mention Green Lantern. I, I was on a real high, man. <laughs> we, were, we were discussing a good movie. We were having some fun talking about Tyker Waititi. And then what do you do? You go and throw in Green Lantern. <laughs> I'm not going to say I'm disappointed. I'm not going to say I'm angry. I'm ashamed. Think about what you've done today. But also, Taika Waititi is really great as Korg. Korg was the best character in the whole damn movie. Oh, I've just been carrying around because I, oh, I felt guilty. I, I stepped on him on the bridge. Oh, mi mixed it. Yeah, it looks like the foundations are still there. If you give it some time, maybe... Oh, no, the foundations are gone. I've been starting a bit of a revolution. I've been handing out some posters and having some meetings, but only my mum and his boyfriend have been coming round to the meetings. I don't get very on very well with my mum's boyfriend. Here, I'm going to add a tragic backstory to Korg. Right, so you know in the dark world where Thor completely oh, no. obliterates the dude made of rock, I reckon that was Korg's actual father. No! And then the reason why he doesn't get on with his mum's boyfriend is because she's not half the man that his oh, dad was. Oh no, that's so sad. <laughs> no, rock character from Four Dark World. No need to be scared of him, unless you're made of scissors. Oh, that's amazing. Just a little rock, paper, scissors joke there. It's a rock, paper, scissors joke for you. I think it's very vain when directors put themselves in movies. And like Shyamalan, Peter Jackson. But when it's done like this, it's absolutely hilarious. Like, like if, if you didn't know... If you didn't specifically know who Taika Waititi was, you would have no clue that he was the director. Yeah. Like, I saw this with my girlfriend. She was just, like, so confused as to who it was. She's like, I know I've heard that voice somewhere before. I was like, I refuse Green to Green Lantern. Her. Yeah, I just refused to tell her because I wanted her just to be able to enjoy the surprise at the end of, oh my god, it's the director. He's that cool guy that he can just come into something like this and just play a little one-off hilarious character. Tyker's really sort of made his mark in the Marvel films. Like, I, I would be happy if, when, if, if Thor gets through Infinity War, which I expect he probably will, um, if for Thor 4, instead of it being called Thor 4 something or another, if it was just Ragnarok 2. Yeah. Like, and then they had this trilogy and then they just had the other two and sort of pushed them aside a yeah. bit. Because if they brought Tyker back and then it would just sort of all slot into place. Yeah, and I think everyone had so much fun in this movie, there'd be no complaint. Like, this was a really stupidly well-received movie, like, financially and critically. It's the highest scoring on Rotten Tomatoes MCU film. Damn, surprised it'd be Homecoming, but... Like, because everyone in the world loves Homecoming. But to see, like, it do so well, I think it's a clear sign that Kevin Feige bringing in these, like off-shot directors like Ryan Coogler and Taika Waititi like bringing them in to then like make these movies is like a brilliant sign of how well that's working. And it also shows that the MCU is going in a better direction because Edgar Wright was famously doing Ant-Man yeah. before he then had to leave the project due to 
artistic different no creative differences um they and all these franchise films have had so many directors leave phil or chris miller and solo but this shows that they are putting trust in them because Taika Waititi said that he had little to no studio interference because he pitched them the film that he wanted to make. Yeah. And then they, it was in line with what studio wanted. And they were like, just, just make that, just yeah. exactly make that. I think also this movie like marks the start of what I think all superhero movies are going to start to become. If you, if you start to look at the likes of Warner Brothers and Fox, they're dumbing down on the big universe films. And if you think about with the Marvel Universe as well, after Infinity War, they're going to start dumbing it down. To, and I think what we're going to see on all of these fronts are these individual little superhero movies, because that's what Thor Ragnarok is. Like, although it does service a larger story, it's a brilliant little episode or chapter that works by itself. And I think that's what audiences are responding so well to, something that just works where you don't have to have seen, like, episode 52, 96 and 84 just to understand it and to see more movies like that work well is going to be brilliant because I think they're what this genre does best when it's a superhero movie but it brings in other elements like comedy, like it's a heist movie, like it's a mystery film and I think if we can see films like For Ragnarok that does this so well do really well like at the box office and with critics we'll hopefully start to see more on every front which is clearly what we're starting to see when like you're getting things like new mutants and james franco's gonna do a multiple man movie or whatever and i really hope that like with dc as well like we start after flashpoint happens we get these individual stories like with batgirl and hopefully a nightwing and i think for ragnarok will in time to come be kind of marked as one of the maybe movies that helps start that trend because that's one of the reasons that why this movie is so good. Because it is just such a well done, tightly knitted together story that just works and you don't have to have seen anything while going in. Also, Marvel announced a while ago that this is the start of a Hulk storyline that's going to be continued. Do you think Bruce Banner's dead? Because Bruce, do you reckon that's the storyline that they're going to take it on? Because Bruce said after that amazing shot where it had like, the reflection of the Hulk and then mm. Bruce, and then it showed how they're the same. But do you reckon, because he said the next time Hulk comes out, he doesn't think that he's going to be able yeah. to get out of it again. So do you reckon that's what they were going for in like the direction they're taking this Hulk story? Yeah, I think that's something that will be hopefully explored when like we see Infinity War and whatever following films the Hulk happens to appear in. And I, cause I think it will be very interesting for the character and for the movie goes itself like the movie goes is like as great as mark ruffalo is they want to see the hulk like you don't go to a hulk mm. movie to see mark ruffalo you go to see the hulk kicking the shit out of things say that to edward norton yeah exactly but to see like still mark ruffalo have a purpose for being there to like see that kind of like mental confliction even if they just set an entire movie where the hulk is the hulk for the whole film but mark ruffalo the bruce banner is in his head like Nightmare and Silver. Yeah, exactly. Like, if he's in his head, that would be a really interesting movie kind of put forward because I think the most interesting about, thing about the Hulk is, like, Banner's fear of becoming mm. him. Like, he, he knows it's right to sometimes do it, but at the end of the day, he is always terrified to become which. And to see, like, a sort of trend where he cannot go back to being Bruce Banner would be, like, really interesting for his character because, like, they make a joke about it in this film. He's like, I've got seven PhDs. Like, he prides himself in ways on being Bruce Banner. Like, 
And it's almost like he's yeah. trying to make excuses to himself on why he should be Bruce Banner because he's like, I have seven PhDs, I am smart and I am clever. Yeah. I've got Scarlett Johansson fancying me. <laughs> it's like, Lucky self. You've got reasons to stay human, mate. You've got reasons to stay human. Two things that annoyed me about the big wolf. Well, not about the big wolf, but about things that included the big wolf. Idris Elba is supposed to be this dude that can see everything. Yeah. He's running all the Asgardians across the bridge. How did he not see that the wolf was... Like guarding the Bifrost yeah. to begin with. We're gonna get into this because I was really disappointed by how much Idris Elba was in this. Like, yeah, he. Had I his... wanted him to be in it more. Yeah, he had his really, really badass shots, but I was really expecting to hear him to be in this more. I was hoping it was gonna be him that took the fight to Hela. It was that stupid little side character from Dark World. I can't remember the name of. <laughs> and I was thinking this was gonna be the movie that finally confirmed Heimdall is the person with the Soul Stone. Like it's in him or in the sword or something. Nothing was done to that, which while can be argued to be a good thing, it kind of does just bastardise Heimdall, because it gives him really nothing to do in the movie. Also, another thing that annoyed me about the wolf, when Banner fell out of the, well, jumped out of the ship, I was really hoping, because it's happened so many times, where he lands and then he's not the Hulk, and he just like, flops like it happened in the incredible hulk and it's happened so many times i hoped that they'd just finally have him land as the hulk and it'd be this big yeah. badass shot but then it does go for the joke and it thinks that it's the first film and the first people to have ever done that and it's like oh yeah look at us we're funny we're new we're edgy whereas i thought that it would have been really badass if it just landed as the hulk yeah i wanted this to be the film that delivered the promise of fan four stick where when we had the original trailer, the thing was jumping out of the, the plane and was like, was gonna land like as the thing. And while we never got that shot in the movie because it was an atrocity, it would have been amazing to see something like that as the Hulk. And I think he was really kind of downplayed in this movie as like an action character. For me, he was a lot more of a comedy character. Don't get me wrong, he was hilarious in the moments where it's like, when he's completely naked, <laughs> like when he just throws the bed at Valkyrie just to get her attention. I do think, like, his capacity as an action character was kind of, like, limited. Because, like, when we look back to the original Avengers, he's got the best scenes in that battle. Mm. Like, where he just, like, punches it when he says, like, oh, I'm always angry. And it was kind of just lost in this movie a little bit. And also, people are being like, oh, Thor and Hulk are having a fight. And while it is a brilliant fight, it happened in the Avengers. Yeah, we've already had one. And I think... Really, we've had a bit of a superior one as well. Like, I think the fight was a tiny bit of a disappointment in this movie. I was hoping to maybe see, like... I think Thor became far too powerful far quickly. Like, far too quickly. I think Hulk should have really had his moment in the sun to, like, really kick the crap out of him. And then there'd be that thing where he can bring out the lightning. Because he is a very puny man compared to the size of that thing. I think it's the sort of thing, like... Batman versus Superman, where it's still a really well done fight. It's just people were expecting this big, massive thing. Yeah. And especially even, like, given that they made it the core part of the marketing, mm. it's going to be that fight. Like amazing how no, imagine how well it would have been if we had no clue Hulk was in this. Yeah. And then and then the crowd start doing the green, and then it's all like oh, oh. What's, it's like, and no, it's like oh it my goodness, it's like oh they went there. I loved how Valkyrie was just watching it, and then, and then as he goes up, and then, then cuts to Korg, it's like, another day, another dunk. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a real testament to the comedy and capability of this movie. 
Although the flash forward for the when Thor was in Age of Ultron and he was in that pool and it's like, you killed us and it's stuff. Yeah, they had That's... clearly very different ideas for what they wanted to do with this movie. And I think when like people are doing their marathons, that's going to be something that people are like, what? It also shows how much was improvised. It's almost like Aladdin. They uh, Disney wanted the script to be nominated for an Oscar, so they put it forward. But then they said that Robin Williams improvised so much of it that it can't yeah. be eligible for the script Oscar. So... Which is understandable. Like, yeah. And while it can be a problem in Marvel movies, I mean, look at Iron Man 2. Like, obviously, that is what was Sam Rockwell doing in that movie, honestly. He He's was, better than that. He was dreadful in that movie because of it. And it made me dislike him for a long while. Until so you watch I, Moon. Yeah, until you watch Moon. But it made me very, very wary about there being too much improvisation in these movies. And to see it done so perfectly in this movie, it's like a real like good sign that like the, Mar the Marvel franchise is in a good place at this moment with things like that. Where do we think this film is going to go though? Like, there are so many ways it can go. Like, I don't think Hell is dead. She's no, clearly not at all. Infinity War. You can't kill death. No, you really can't. And while Kate Blanchett isn't the biggest star on the planet, she does at least deserve at least more than ten minutes. Yeah, a death scene. If we're going to show like her death scene, it's going to be a big one. It's going to be something meaningful. And then just for, to see her somewhat approaching the big flame guy with a giant sword bursting out the ground, that's not a good conclusion for her character or for the actress. So I think we'll definitely see her again. And then, of course, how we've got Thanos coming in at the end. Like, I think that's going to... Do you reckon they're going to completely explode Asgard's ship or um, Thor's going to come out and then he's going to... No, and then that ship's going to get away or they're going to completely kill all the Asgardians. I think they're going to kill the Asgardians and that's going to be a primary, like, focus for Thor, why he wants to then... Um, fight Thanos and then how he brings the Guardians to the Avengers. That means they're going to kill Korg. Yeah, I think they probably will do something to, like that to really make you hate Thanos. They're going to need to do something very quickly to make you dislike the character because they're going to want everyone primed to fight him. And I think it'll be the scene where probably they reveal Heimdall is the Soul Stone or like has it in him somehow. They'll kill Heimdall, which will make you hate him. And then I think Loki, I don't think they'll kill him off, but he'll probably spend a good majority of the movie as like a, as like a prisoner or an underling of yeah. Because Thanos will be like, "You yeah. failed me, get an Earth, and now you'll yeah, now be whatever." Watch me take everything. Um, and then I think it's going to be that conflict that then because the rumor is that in the trailer, yeah, he like hits the Guardians' yeah, windshield, yeah. and like that's what then he like brings them to Earth, and that's what makes them go together. I think that's what's going to be the tension, like the animosity between the pair. An extra thing that I'd like to add about this film, I feel like this film had, the Stan Lee cameo had the biggest impact on the film, like with the haircut, because oh, a haircut for Thor is a big thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah then... I prefer him with the long hair, but that was a really great scene where like they cut his hair. And like he actually had a story function, like most days, like he's just a cutaway joke, but in this movie he actually was doing something, like he I'd say somewhat my... served a story function. I would say my favourite Stan Lee cameo, apart from guardians 2 is in fantastic four rise of the silver surfer where he's trying to get into their wedding yeah. and he's like no i'm stan lee no yeah. no i'm stan lee it's really really right. upsetting that you claim that's your favorite um stan lee cameo not 
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage. <laughs> Sunshine is the DJ in the strip club. That's the best Stanley cameo. You may not be able to find love here, but you can read it for five minutes. Oh, God. I think the future for this franchise is in a really bright place, though. Like, I think 4 has been so drastically changed in this movie. Like, spoiler alert, like, the shot in the trailer where he's got the lightning powers. They lied to me. That's not true. Like, he's got an eye patch. Like, he loses an eye that in this movie. In, um, in the Infinity War trailer they showed at Comic-Con, they also had him with an eye, so it didn't spoil exactly. that he lost it. And it's like, he's gone through so much in this movie, he's going to be such a force to be reckoned with in the, in the future movies. Like, especially when he gets his new hammer, because they have... They've confirmed in casting-wise that Peter Dinklage will be in Infinity War. Yes. And there's big rumours, which I can't wait for because he's an amazing actor, that he will be playing the um, the Dwarf King, which is, like, one of the Nine Realms, and he will build for the new, like, like Mjolnir, like, with the axe on the end. I love the axe. And I think that's going to be brilliant to then see, like, where he's in full lightning god mode and he's got his new hammer and he's literally become Goku. <laughs> Do you have anything else you want to say on Thor? I would say... Marvel has enough money, so you don't need to go out and see this now. It's not like Mother. I would say it is still definitely worth a watch. You'll have a lot of fun watching it. You'll have a lot of fun just seeing it because Taika Waititi knows how to make a funny film. Yeah, this is definitely, for me, a top 10 Marvel movie. It was brilliantly well-directed. Some of the comedy was a little bit hit or miss, but it mm. will entertain audiences, both adult and children. Yeah. It was really, really well made, and I think it's a testament to how well Kevin Viking knows these directors and knows the right one to pick for these characters, and how much they can shake up a character when they want to. So while maybe don't rush out, immediately go and see it, definitely keep this film on your radar, because I think when this whole superhero buzz is finished, and when the whole first marvel universe is done we're going to look back in years and we're going to think ragnarok was a real highlight and was one of those just individual little movies that could do something great i also can't wait for the blu-ray release because just think of how many takes were improvised with like different alternate jokes the amount of content yeah there's gonna be so much on the bonus materials i can't wait for that so yeah for ragnarok really really great movie we rate it honestly stupidly highly for me, it's probably in getting into the top five of the MCU movies. It's not the best, but it is definitely up there. I rate it seven meeks out of Korg. So now we're going to move on to the quickfire question, and it's my turn this week. Now, we've been discussing Taika Waititi quite a bit with the Four Ragnarok review, and he's a well-known indie director, and it's been interesting to see him come into a big studio project that is a superhero movie. And it got me thinking while we were discussing this, there aren't many indie superhero films. And while like the big studios have got the big characters like the Batmans, the Iron Man, Spider-Man, my question would be, what movie, what superhero movie would be better if it was reimagined as an indie movie? My answer for this is Zack Snyder's 2013 Man of Steel. This is one of my absolute superhero, favorite superhero films ever made i really enjoy it for all the problems it's got i admit i think it's well shot i think it's well acted but i think with an indie movie you could do something really special here what i would do is i would remove everything that is shown after he gets the suit 
I would have the end of this movie literally be him getting the suit and then flying off. I would make this movie primarily a story about a young boy accepting his powers, because that's what I loved so much about Man of Steel. You've got the scenes where like he's um, struggling with the x-ray vision, that would be amazing to show if you've got a young child actor who brought them in to show that kind of peril. It'd be great to then see the mother-son relationship. I think it'd be great if you had the scene with the school bus where he's like trying to save it and he doesn't know whether to. And then where his father, Kevin Cosner, comes in and says, like, oh, what should I have done? Like, just let him die? He says, maybe you should have. I think that would be a really interesting narrative to be seen on screen. And also I would include maybe, like, a teenage storyline where you've got something where it's, like, he's disobeying his father. And then that leads into the death of Kevin Cosner. You wouldn't need to include the Kryptonian matters in this because people know the story. And I think it would be fascinating to see something different like this. Because while I love Man of Steel, even I can admit it was by the numbers the story of Superman. So to see like this intimate part explored so acutely and tightly would be really interesting because Smallville failed at it spectacularly. So you'd want Midnight Special mixed with Smallville? In ways, yeah. yeah. I'd basically just like to see Superman done right because what's interesting about Superman isn't He's got all these powers, he's got the cool suit, he goes off and fights all these villains. It's just the fact that he's an ordinary guy who just decides to go do good when the world is crap. And that would be something that would be beautiful to be shown in this movie. Someone who goes through life thinking, I could rule the world, but really I should just try and be an ordinary guy and just do what's right here and there. And I think that's something that, like all indie movies or shorts do, they show a message, they show an exploration of a human mind... And that's what I think an indie version of Man of Steel could do. I would like to see an indie version of Spider-Man Homecoming. Hmm. Because it's the classic affair of it being taken out to large proportions with large stakes. With Well, it's not world-ending stakes, but it's still a big fight sequence. I would just like a smaller on-the-ground story, which is similar to what we got. But even then, you can still tell that it's a big production. If it was more like Chronicle, an interesting take on found footage, where Peter has a project for school or something like that, so he's carrying a camera around with him. And then we see all through the film, all these spectacular things happening to him because he's Spider-Man and he's filmed it all himself for this school project. But then... As the credits are rolling next to it, it shows the cut that he had to edit, to edit out Spider-Man. So then it's literally just like a five-minute thing on, like, oh, what was your summer like, or something like that. And it was like a five-minute thing where it doesn't look like a lot's happened, but we've seen all this happen. And I think that could be quite interesting because it could deal with themes of growing up, like Spider-Man does in the regular films, but it would give an intimacy that isn't normally explored in blockbusters because indie level, as you said, they have a meaning, they have more of a message. It's not about the spectacle as such. And it's more about characters in the story. And I feel that a found footage Spider-Man film could work effectively because if there is an action sequence in there, just imagine if they did it properly and executed it in a way that worked, 
So, for example, the cameras, he sets up the camera somewhere, it's poking out his bag, but then his bag falls off and it's falling down and then he grabs the camera with his web and then it swings round and then it shows like the whole action in like a big yeah, panoramic shot. That sort of thing. So I'm saying that a version of Spider-Man Homecoming or the original Spider-Man, the origin story without the Uncle Ben stuff would be an interesting indie film. I'm not going to lie, that sounds like a great pitch. I'd love to see something like that done. And I think some of the ideas there, especially like with the um, kind of shots you make, would be very interesting. My only problems with it that I see are the fact that you claim it's kind of like a coming-of-age film. We've got a lot of those already. Yeah. We've got a hell of a lot of those. And given the fact that it is the Marvel franchise, I don't think you could make something on an indie scale when it is Marvel. It is the blockbuster king at the moment. And I think mine essentially stands apart because it kind of gives an interesting exploration into the condition of a superhero. Like, not they don't do things because... That's what makes Superman unique. He doesn't do this because his parents were murdered. He doesn't do it because he was bitten by a radioactive spider. He just does it because he knows it's right. He knows that it's what people should do. And it's his job to do it. That's why I think it would be interesting to explore that kind of mentality. Because how does a person live in this world as dreadful as it is, like with politics and war, and still, at the end of the day, think, I should be doing this? Which I think is something that isn't shown, whereas I think with your homecoming, as much as I'd love to see something like it, I think we would get themes that we've seen in other movies. Yeah, yeah, I'm just trying, I'm trying to think of how it, it could then be an interesting take on it yeah. and because coming of age is a very common thing, yeah. if they did make it more grounded, I, I'm not sure, yeah. but... So are we going to have to toss the coin or are you going to concede? <laughs> No, because I'd like to see both these films. And you make yeah. the argument you make the argument that Disney's a powerhouse and it would never make an indie film. That's true. But then would Warner Bros. They wouldn't think... take Superman and put that into an indie film because well, he is if, a big staple. Well, they you've got that argument to make, but I think if this was being made in two thousand and thirteen, like as you say, it's reimagined released when it was if you think you've just had the big colossal disaster that is Green Lantern, lots of people didn't enjoy that because it was very by the numbers and badly done. You've just had the sensational Dark Knight trilogy, which are three of the best blockbusters you'll ever see. Mm -hmm. So maybe Warner Brothers thinks, let's try and do something different this time because we now know that we haven't got the Dark Knight hype. We haven't, we've seen that these ones don't work. Let's try something different for a character. Let this then be the stepping stone that shows the world that they're trying something different and that they're allowing for creativity with new types of actors where then people who are interested in replicating the same kind of creativity and doing something different are then able to be brought in to work in the dcu which is actually what we're seeing where we're getting like experimental and different kinds of filmmakers coming forward to making these movies because like you've got joss whedon doing batgirl and matt reeves doing batman i think that would be the kind of indie movie that would then set up something so much larger. You've got a small beginning of a little boy learning he's got superpowers that will then lead to a universe of heroes coming from it. I wish that's the Man of Steel that we got. I like it. I like I like Man of Steel, but I, think I enjoy Man of Steel, too. but that would be ten times better. Yeah. Especially with if they just had Zack Snyder as director of photography. Yeah. Give it to someone else and just end the movie with him launching into the sky. That's all you need. 
So, heads or tails? Heads. That wasn't a flip. <laughs> it's literally the theme from Jaws. Yes! Yes! Damn. Yes! I was so proud of that pitch. I was so proud of that pitch. Thank you, God. That One is now, what is it? Three to two? Because you've got three. No. I think I've got two now. Or have I just overtaken you? You definitely haven't overtaken Damn. me. Damn, <laughs> I'm hoping I can win I'll have to go back and, and look at C. I think it might be 3-3. Three, three. Oh, I'm not complaining about that. <laughs> but I've got my mind thinking of... It would be interesting to see a small like Batman film as like yeah. just a detective one rather than and like shy away from the action heavy stuff and just be like a detective film, and also Watchmen. Well, yeah, like exactly. HBO's doing that, but which is hopefully what we'll see when Matt Reeves gets his hands on it. Hmm? So we we'll now move on to what's appertaining, and for me. Unfortunately, not a lot's going on this week. I've been diving into a lot of movies, trying to like expand some of the filmography now that I've got the Oscar season coming out. But recently, I've been starting to rewatch Black Mirror with my girlfriend because she's been trying to get her into it. Yeah. She's absolutely adoring it. Loves Nosedive. Loves San Junipero. It's really enjoying it. And I've been just loving going back into it. And we've duly agreed that on Christmas, we'll both be sitting down to watch White Christmas. It's so one that, good. One that neither of us have seen, and we've now specially saved for Christmas. I've started Peaky Blinders, which is absolutely brilliant. It's fantastic. Cillian Murphy's great, as always. Um, you wait until Tom Hardy gets there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, have you seen it? I've seen the first season, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I also finally finished Tin Star. That was a series that I was watching with my dad. That's why I was slower with it. But that, it was weird. It was quirky. It was, it left you on the edge of your seat. It, it was a brilliant series. I cannot recommend Tin Star enough. Um, but apart from that, I've just been watching a few things on the side, just here and there. I've been watching a couple of films. But apart from that, that's been what's appertaining. <laughs> just before we start with Jake's recommendation as well, we're just going to discuss Bargain Bin. I will be reserving my Bargain Bin list until next week where I'll be bringing to you a Black Friday haul because I'm going to have a lot to discuss, especially with a certain something I've got hopefully arriving in the mail next week. With my recommendation of the week this week, I've had a few classics that I've seen years ago built up and I have a list of them, but I didn't get a chance to actually rewatch any of them. So instead I'm gonna go with a small indie film that I watched. It isn't the best film you'll ever see by far, but some of the shots in this, you can tell that it feels like they've just come out of film school and they have a tick, no, they have a checklist of all these different shots, all these fancy shots, and they're just going through one by one. And that's not a criticism. It, it's just, this film shows what can be made on a budget. And it is the 2016 horror film, Shortwave. And it's a science fiction horror film, which is interesting to see because 
I both love horror and I love science fiction. And then when they merge together, which I think is one of the reasons why I enjoy Black Mirror so much, it creates some interesting concepts. And while this doesn't have the best acting in it, although the two leads are phenomenal, it's just some of the supporting cast that aren't as outstanding. It doesn't have all these big jump scares. It doesn't have all these, it doesn't rely on gore. And while gore is in there, it serves a purpose. And it's because you genuinely care for one character in particular. Well, I personally cared for one character in particular, which made me connect so much with the film. And it's one of those films where after you've seen it, it's a very sort of niche film. And if you enjoyed it while watching it, and then you liked what's revealed at the end, then you will instantly want to go back and rewatch it at the start. It's not for everyone, but if you're into science fiction, if you're into horror and you're into, this is very much a slow burner film. It's incredibly well directed. There are a few annoying visual stuff like the focus is artificial and a few things like that. But for the most part, this is a solid film that deals with some interesting issues and interesting concepts. But I would recommend if you're into science fiction and you're into horror, but it's not for everyone. That's it for this week on the Sour Popcorn Podcast. We'll see you next week with hopefully a review for Justice League. Justice. I'm very sad because I've noticed a fidget spinner in your screensaver. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, that's awful. Why? That's awful. It's not a fidget spinner. It's kind of a fidget spinner. <laughs>